Welcome back to The Ethical Technologist. I'm your host, Ben Liner. On the podcast today, we have one of my best friends from the DC area, Ben Sollenberger, on to talk about how technology has impacted the world of psychotherapy and mental health. In addition to being a business operations manager at Path Mental Health, a mental health care startup, Ben is also a licensed and practicing therapist. So we talk about the impact of technology on access to care, the patient experience, and overall mental health in 2023. Ben Sollenberger, welcome to The Ethical Technologist. How you doing, man? Great. Good to be here, Ben. Glad to have you. I know we've been talking about doing this for a long time, and we could clear a spot in your very, very busy schedule. So busy. It's so overdue. Yeah. So how, you know, I know a little bit about what you do at PATH, but for, for our immense living audience, could you talk to us a little bit about what you do, what you do there? Yeah. So I am the operations manager at PATH Mental Health. And it might even be beneficial to start, what is PATH Mental Health, right? Go for uh, it. Let's go with it. Okay. So PATH is, what we do is essentially we match patients with therapists who take their insurance. That's simple, right? It's about, you know, four years, five years old, our company. We've seen incredible growth over those years in our ability to serve patients. We've hit a million patients just this year. So we are really, really expanding. And it's an exciting time for, for PATH and mental health. And then back to what am I doing at PATH Mental Health? So again, I am a, an operations manager. And that's probably one of the most ill-defined roles in the history of business. Huh? And my, my, my history and experience at PATH really stick with that fact. I've done so many projects, so many work streams all across the business. It is dizzying to even think about it now. Mm. Mm. So the idea of connecting patients with therapists where they take their insurance, right? Like that sounds really obviously a good thing. Like, is there anything sort of ethically fraught in, in even in the mission of the company that you wouldn't even think about? Or is it just an unadulterated good thing? I think it's, I think it's more the unadulterated good thing. Let's like play, you know, play the tape back five, 10 years ago. And there weren't companies like Path Mental Health out there. Now there are a couple, there's actually a decent. And before that, the really online brokers for, for therapy were companies like Talkspace, BetterHelp. Uh, and these companies, you know, they offered therapy, but it was typically almost exclusively cash pay. So there wasn't, they weren't taking insurance, right? Which most Americans can't afford. It's, it's even at $75, $100, this is just not, you know, an economic, you know, an economic reality for a lot of Americans. So what PATH has done, we have basically anchored ourselves to payers. So the Aetnas of the world, the Kaisers of the world, and by doing so, we are able to connect patients and, you know, have co-pays often $0, but, you know, sometimes 30, it's really affordable 
So I, I see this as an almost unmitigated good. So take that, all you who think business is always evil all the time. The, <laughs> that sounds like a pretty cool company. So, but, you know, since we are the ethical technologists mm-hmm. and we are here to talk about sort of ethical issues at work, and since, as you mentioned, it's dizzying, I think that was the word you used, to mm-hmm. contemplate the, the vast and vague scope of your role as operations manager. Like, what are, some of the, what are some of the ethical issues that you encounter in your life at PATH? Yeah. So I'll, I think in best in terms of examples, and I think those are also the most interesting ones to play out. And I will do my best not to anger PATH lawyers, while also telling a story that you'll want to listen to. So I think one... Before you launch into the story, Ben, I want to caveat that you're not here in your capacity representing PATH at all. Right. Just in case any of any of the, you know the past legal team is listening to this podcast, please continue. And they all are. They all. Are. Yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully they all are because of our wide and expanding reach. It's dizzying to contemplate. Dizzying. Okay, story time. Go for it. Okay. So we have one way that we market to our patients and, and find patients out there are through affiliates. So. Some common ones that you might have heard of are ZocDoc, Psychology Today, Good Therapy. We partner with those uh, channels to to make patients aware about PATH. And when we put our providers on those channels, we want to be the providers that you see. We want to be the top of the, the search results, right? All about the visibility. And we there are a couple of levers that you can hit to get to that visibility, right? One of them is just having good therapists, right? Which we try to like, we just have, we wanna get the best therapists, people who are really good at their craft and good at selling their crafts. There's some other levels, levers too. The one that is most ethically sticky are reviews. Reviews mm. for your, your therapists. There's a lot of gray area in the, code of ethics for therapy around the solicitation of reviews and who you can and who you cannot solicit reviews from. So there is a tension between path, our objective of getting reviews as many as we can who are provided profiles and also the code of ethics putting up a big yellow even red flags sometimes around that practice. And so I, as an operations manager, thinking about how can I get our providers to rank high on these websites while staying in the constraints of the ethics in front of us and actually interpreting them, that's a challenge. Well, I I hear that challenge and I'm curious how you navigate it, but it also speaks to this broader question of how we rate quality. And it's like, how do we set up markets for, for quality, even something like therapy, where if I were to ask, you know, I've been in therapy at various points in my life. And if you were to ask me to quantify like the, 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 the quality of my therapists, like, you know, their smile was an eight, their advice was a two, you know, and, and using that in some kind of ranking system to prioritize therapists, that, that seems like dubious as well. I'm curious though, on that first part, like how do you navigate sort of getting those reviews if, if they're so important? to to raising the profile of of path therapists? 
One technique, and I'll, and I'll say this is a general one, so it's not a secret sauce of the company, is embedding, you know, surveys. Every time that a patient has a visit with a provider, you can get a survey, right? But in that, we have, you know, getting explicit permission of the patient to use this for marketing as well. So it's not enough for us to just get a review and then post it online. We have to get the explicit consent of a patient to do that in order for us to even begin considering posting their review online. Another element there is we do de-identify the patients, right? So we're not putting up memes. It's, it's if there is information about the patients in the review, you know, we filter it out, right? So we do not accept those reviews. So there are a lot of, a lot of parts of the process where we're trying to protect the patient's anonymity and also educate them on what the ramifications are if I'm posting this review. So I'm curious, as you compare different methods and, and initiatives and different ways of trying to accomplish this goal, uh, measured by number of reviews submitted, how you sort of traded off the ethical benefits and pitfalls of each approach and how you thought about designing this program in a way that it was going to be both um, quantitatively and ethically successful. Yeah. So I'll go with the ethics one first. I, I had the then um, head of clinical, who's no longer a path. We escalated it to her for her review. And, you know, she is, she is our, our ethics guru. We reviewed the proposal that I had put out across, you know, referenced that with the ethics from the ACA. And, you know, ultimately that's how we came to the decision. See, you know, she said, I think we have the green light here. Again, we took a lot of measures to protect patient anonymity and to inform patients on this. And we also, you know, put in a, a disclaimer. So, you know, when we asked our therapists to ask their patients or previous patients about getting reviews, we noted that it, it, typically it falls on the therapist to use their discretion, right? There are going to be some patients who we shouldn't ask for reviews from. It's just not appropriate. They're just not in the right state to give them. This wouldn't help them. And if that's the case, we, we caution them, you know, don't do it, right? Because ultimately, the outcomes of our, our patients are more valuable than the reviews. So that's how the process looks internally. And that's how it really it echoes this throughout all of the business operation projects that I'm doing. You know, if there is something where, you know, we apply kind of like, you know, finger in the wind, is it ethically, you know, dubious? then we're going to bring it to our ethics and our legal team to review. So that is just a common practice at PATH. So I happen to know that you haven't been at PATH forever and you worked at a number of different types of companies. It seems like because you're working in healthcare, PATH is sort of brings ethics to the fore in terms of the culture and the day-to-day -day practices of the company more than your average company. Would you, would you say that that's true? Yeah, it has to be true too. I mean, it's, it's, it's true because I, I think the people there are, you know, for, I'm fortunate enough to work with people who, who really intend to do good. And that's one reason why it's true. And I think it's the second reason why it's true is 
it has to be. The stakes are, are just too high. So we've talked about Path as this ethical company. I don't think your legal department would have any problems with your appearance so far, Ben. The follow-up there is, has there ever been an, an, sort of an ethical breach or something you guys got wrong? And, and if so, I'm curious how you realized and how you went about shifting it. Yeah. So we have, there are pathways at Path for escalating any kind of ethical you know, mistake. And they happen. They happen a decent bit. When you're, when you're doing therapy individually, the therapist is going to slip and they're going to make a mistake and they're going to have to do a repair. And it's not dissimilar when you're doing it at scale. So I've seen us do a couple of missteps over the past couple of years. And we do have an anonymous line. I think there's like a, an email inbox too that you can submit to that people have. They've self-reported when they've made mistakes and then re-rectify those. I think the most important part is the repair because the mistakes are going to happen. But how we repair and how better, I think that's, that's what is more deterministic of path and who we are ethically. Sure. And so when you talk about that, are you talking about sort of the, the breaches and failures of the individual therapists, or are you talking more about the, the breaches that the company has had or a policy, or for example, I'm, I'm imagining a million ways that the review program could have gone wrong from the jump, or you did, you failed to consider a certain angle and for failure to do that, something went wrong. Yeah. So we have. We have actually, I mean, we'll go back to the review program. There were instances where we were collecting reviews in the way we shouldn't. We'll go into detail, but there are practices there that it wasn't to the, the detriment of the patients. But again, like there are some big ethical question marks and we were doing an action for a while and we, you know, we had legal look over it. And then we undid it, right? We rolled it back. That was, you know, taking that decision was a step back for us, you know, probably from a growth perspective, but a step forward for us from, in terms of a company that, you know, is, is following the law and is, is doing the right thing. I'm curious in a situation like this, that's super fraught. We, t we teach a case at Darden about the decision of whether to launch a technology that detects depression in teenage girls that has a certain, that, that has a certain error rate and how much risk tolerate from an ethical perspective before you decide to launch something into the world. And of course, there's no way to assume away or to resolve every possible source of risk before you launch something. But I wonder if if PATH has had a conversation or if you've had a conversation working there about risk tolerance and how you think about it in the context of launching certain initiatives or programs. Yeah. I'm going to give you one that you might not be expecting. So there are sometimes some competing interests, competing incentives. Obviously, every time we see, you know, a patient, we get paid and... That said, 
So we want to, you know, we want to market people to continue seeing therapy, but ultimately there becomes a point when they probably don't need therapy anymore. And it's not always clear when that point is, right? And so, you know, when we're launching out, you know, a, a feature that we launched out a while back was auto scheduling appointments. So auto scheduling appointments, essentially you book your first appointment and then after you have that appointment, that will automatically book you X number of appointments out, right? And the risk in booking, let's say, putting 16 on the calendar is that we are going to be setting expectations for a patient that they might need 16 visits with Pat to, to even start, you know, getting better. And while that might be, you know, financially beneficial for us, the risk that we're running here is that this patient is going to be exhausting their, their financial resources, is probably going to be seeing less benefit as they continue on in therapy if they don't need it. And that's going to come at the expense of us of having more revenue from that, right? So ultimately, when we were rolling out this auto scheduling feature, you know, the risk that we were trying to figure out is what is the right number of visits to start with that balances, you know, our interests in having a, a, a patient, you know, see a path therapist while also not having them, you know, feel beholden to a path, you know, therapist for way too much longer than they can afford and way too much longer than they had. So that's super interesting. How do you overcome those aligned incentives? It, is it something you communicate with therapists? Is it something that you communicate directly to patients? Because I imagine, you know, there's there's got to be some way to to at least acknowledge those misaligned incentives. Yeah, all the above. You know, one one initiative at Path is we do have an advisory board of therapists, like a council of therapists that we do consult with when we're rolling out major changes or maybe even reviewing our, our current practices. So these are, so these are some of the path therapists who, who have, you know, nominated themselves and we have vetted to join us. So they are helping in some of these decision-making, not all, it's just so many decisions happening at, at the company, but we do have, you know, therapists in the room for some of these patients. And while we don't right now, you know, I hope one day we'll have an equivalent kind of advisory committee for native patients. You know, it's, as you're talking about this, I mean, the same incentives, the issue exists between individual therapists and individual patients. Yeah. Um, yes. But the difference is, and, and I'm curious, I'm not sure you know, but PATH is a sort of, is it a series B kind of scale? They're probably going to want to take more funding. I'm curious what metrics investors are looking for to indicate success and whether those metrics exacerbate those incentive problems. We have happy investors. We are, you know, fortunately, you know, our, our growth has been pretty strong and, 
they do care about our our revenue, but what they probably have learned to care about has been our relationships with our our payers. And to the extent that we're going to succeed in growing the business, it's to the extent that we succeed with developing more relationships with different partners and then deepening those relationships. And the way to do that is quality care. It's going to be outcome. It's already becoming more outcome driven. And it's only going to become more so in the future. So numbers that, and I'm not in these board meetings, but I imagine that our investors are looking at with as equal interest as they are our revenue and our patient growth is our quality score on our therapist. Mm. Do, do, do those investor expectations like around the quality score for, for, for therapists, does that trickle down into OKRs or goal setting for individuals at PATH? Because, you know, you hear of these stories where at Facebook, a product manager is in, incented to, to increase MAU at all costs. And that incentive creates all sorts of ethical failings. And I'm wondering how the performance metrics of members of your team reflect both investor values, but also ethical principles. Yeah. So we do have OKRs tied to you know, clinical outcomes. We have a whole, we have a whole business unit devoted to that. I mean, that's their, I, I can't put a number to them, but, you know, it could be 10% of our, our company, but they definitely have OKRs. We talk to them in all hands. We add them in dashboards. We're not there yet in terms of embedding the OKR, like clinical OKRs into, you know, let's say the marketing team or the, you know, operations team or finance. It's not, we're not at that level. That said, I mean, many of the conversations I had that path, when there is an ethical issue that comes up, it is never, you know, brushed off. It is, we need to check with someone on this. This is a good idea, but dot, 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 let's like talk to you know, our head of clinical, or let, let's put this to ethics, let's put this to legal, let's put this to compliance, right? So I, I do feel really good about my company specifically and that there's, seems like pretty much everyone has a, a good moral compass and uh, a sense of duty to involve uh, our clinical team in those, those ethical questions. I think the investor education here is so crucial because you hear, especially in consumer technology products, this idea of investors demanding performance across the metrics that you can measure that indicate revenue, top line revenue. And the fact that you're able to tie business success to patient success bakes an additional stakeholder aside from those investors into the conversation of value creation. And I think that opens you up to, to have a conversation about ethics that's much more robust than simply one that's, that at times can seem abstract, 
sort of like, oh, well, we need to do the right thing, even though it might hurt. You know, it, it becomes a conversation about short-term and long-term metrics trade-offs in an environment where the metrics themselves don't incorporate ethical principles. It, it puts uh, it on head. I think what a company typically thinks as constraints, you know, ethics, we're kind of looking at as jet fuel. This is how it's going to get us far. Are you sure you don't work in marketing? Jet fuel is very catchy. Mm. You heard it first here. I want to sort of take take our, our listenership for sort of a, a curveball, which is to say that I happen to know, and now they will know that you, Ben, are also a practicing therapist. Oh, I'm outed. I'm outed. And, and so I want to talk to you a little bit about that experience as it relates to technology. Um, before we were getting on, you were talking about Zoom therapy and how it affects patient experience and outcomes. And I, I just want to hear your observation of that um, because, it, uh, of course, it is a trend, especially post-COVID. Yeah, I, I can tell you that by and large, it has probably been a, a boon to mental health in the U.S. And I'm going to start with the most basic reason why, and that's accessibility. Okay, let's, let's say that we can't do therapy over Zoom or over the, you know, yeah, whatever choose your platform, you're going to have to go and go into someone's office. And for people who have severe depression, where it's difficult to get out of bed in the morning, that five miles to the therapist's office can feel like 500 miles, right? So I think you know, same with people who have severe anxiety about leaving the house. How do you see a therapist in that case? So I think what probably the best advantage of online therapy is that it has widened the front door to therapy and is getting more people in. Is there, is there another side buts. of the coin? Always buts. I'm going to start with a little bit more of the, the pros, but then I'm going to turn that into a but. So... Let's say, you know, going to people who might not otherwise go into a therapist's office is people who have severe social anxiety or just anxiety in general might not feel as comfortable going into the therapist's office and, and staying on Zoom, right? So they see the therapist, but ultimately they come to the point when, you know, the goal of therapy is to help people live a full life and part of living a full life is going out in the real world. So the danger, I think, in, you know, having this option for people is that they can, they can stay safe, right? They can stay a little too safe. It can be a crutch. So I think in, in that way, there are some adverse, you know, potential effects of, of using teletherapy, if, if not managed well by the therapist. Sure. Do you think just sort of as, as someone who sort of is, is coming to the practice of therapy that, that you get the full range of information that you need to make diagnoses or to make recommendations where you're only seeing someone from the neck up? 
<sighs> most times. I, I, I do think there are trade-offs. I think in most cases, you can get a good enough read on someone over time to make diagnoses. It's not perfect, right? There, you're going to miss cues. You know, for example, right, you might in a virtual session, you just start with the person online face-to-face -face, and you talk with them, but maybe they come in for an in-person visit and they keep their purse on their shoulder the whole time, right? So there's some heat and that, that, you know, indicates probably some nervousness, some discomfort with the therapy process that might not play out otherwise online. So there are things that you can miss. I would also say it becomes a little trickier too, depending on the age with children who are very tactile creatures and you probably want to keep a, a a, just a jug of Play-Doh in any therapist's office for kids to help keep them occupied. It's a little harder to hold their attention and conduct therapy over Zoom versus in-person. Not impossible, definitely manageable, definitely needs to get results, but it is it does require some more creativity from the therapist. I would imagine that's the case. Switching a little bit, like... And I'm drawing from conversations that we've had and conversations our friends have. I'm wondering how the concept of technology comes in, comes into your office, be it usually with your patients. I'm wondering if you're hearing anything about phone addiction or attention spans being shortened, like whether you're hearing any of those things and whether they come up for you in, in session. Oh, wow. Okay. This is, we're getting very meta. Well, we might be getting meta because the the company meta is responsible for like half of it. Okay. Well, first, Ben, let me put down my phone while I was just emailing while you asked me that question. Can you, can you repeat it? Something about phone addiction? You're a very, you're a very skilled multitasker, my friend. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I think, you know, from what, from what I've seen, huge detraction, I think stolen focus, that is, that is the Bible and the alarm bells that everyone should read. Uh, yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. That's a great book. Oh my gosh. And if you want to know how we got to stolen focus, how we got to a, a world where we are ruled by our technology, then go ahead and read Hooked. The book Hooked is about how technologists, uh, product managers, uh, you name it, in the early days of technologies made all software as addicting and nudgy as possible to get people glued to their devices. And that's how he got to that book. So that's a good one too for you. Do I see it in my office? Yeah, I see it. I see it all the time. You know, someone might answer, you know, and this is probably a true ball therapist. Like someone might answer a phone in a therapy session. They might text, right? I think that it is a security for some patients, I think it's kind of like a security blanket. If things become too overwhelming or just too much, they can tap out and zone out and go to the phone. And I think that's, that's probably not only just true in, in my office, but also in general situations, if you just think about, you know, Hey, there's a stressful or awkward party. Like I might just check my phone for a couple minutes. So I think it's, it's a really 
normal human tendency, but it, it surprised, to my surprise, plays out in therapy too. Yeah, technology as numbing agents. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with that, that general idea. What advice do you have for, for people who want to recapture their attention? Is it literally just sort of like take up arms and go to war against your phone? Like what, what does that mean? And, and how, what are some techniques that, that you advise so people can be successful? Yeah, I mean, nothing I'm going to say is hasn't been said a thousand times before, but I'll, I'll, I'll speak what I've, what I've seen work and it has, it does have some science behind it, but I think one is just like increasing your awareness about not only just like the, the volume, I think like people do track screen time and they look at it like, oh my God, that is useful. You should, you should track it. But I also think just creating awareness about when you're using, let's say, Instagram or your dating app, what, how are you feeling in that moment? What are you feeling before it? And how do you feel after? And really concentrating that on that, just getting that awareness. And then ultimately, you know, you can start making decisions based off that. You know, you can say, hey, Ben, you know, last time I used, you know, Instagram, for three hours in a row, it was basically me eating two pints of Ben and Jerry's and I threw up. So hopefully being able to recall that feeling that you're starting to pick up on is a deterrent in itself. I think if you want to go even deeper, you're going to have a, to book another session with me. I'll put my therapy link in the show notes for Ben. Yeah, 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 yeah. Always, also, always be selling uh, and, be, and be sure to leave a, and be sure to leave a review. But oftentimes, it's you know, what need are you trying to meet with this technology usage? And if it's often what I think is like maybe if it's loneliness, then okay. If I'm being loneliness, like it's it's just broadening the solution set for that. Like, all right, instead of checking my Instagram, maybe I text my friend Ben. Ben, hey, let's go play tennis. Or maybe I find you know call call a friend that I haven't talked to in a while. Right. So figuring out like what need this is getting you and, you know, looking for alternatives outside of technology. But this isn't the best technology. I think it has a, a place, but I think using technology smartly, that's what we're trying to get people to do. You know, talking from my own experience, like I, I noticed that I used more when I'm tired, when, I, when I'm less capable of focusing anyway is when I look for a distraction or a dopamine hit from, from an Instagram. And, you know, one of the things I'm trying to remind myself though, is that the, the personal relationship with your phone and the war that exists between your phone and your attention or your phone and you over your attention is ongoing. And sometimes you're going to lose the battles and then that's okay. As long as you're sort of trying to build the habits and the architecture and to, to try to win it over time. Uh, to just get a little better every day, but some days are going to be bad. You know, for example, right now, you know, the war, the attacks in Israel have been going on. And, you know, yeah. I've been, you know, as a Jewish person, I've been very tired. I've been very exhausted. And a lot of the conversations happening on social media, perhaps it's even a worse example because social media is, is makes you angry in these moments with, with all the political opinions flying around out there. Right. And they deplete you more and then it makes you look at social media more. It's, you know, it's kind of a just cycle, but you know, in the last few days, I've been trying to remind myself to just be okay with letting yourself do that. You know, you let the phone win when it, when it needs to win because 
as you mentioned, you know, and, and as is listed in this book, hooked, you know, product managers who want to hear attention are really good at it and they get paid thousands of dollars a year to do so. And sometimes you're going to lose, which is really depressing because there's no societal infrastructure. And they talk about this in Still Focus too. There's no societal infrastructure, regulatory framework out there to protect our attention against oh the people who want to take it. And so like, you can't just be vigilant and fighting, fighting, you know, a lot, taking deep breaths, meditating and popping into your body. Is it going <laughs> to, is it, it going to win every time? And that's, that's too bad, but it's just the reality we live in. Oh, it's an, I think you're getting to, it's, it's environmental. It is bigger than one person alone. It's, it's environmental, it's social, our, it's, it's, it's we're going to look at the way we use social media now, probably in like 20, 30 years, the way that we look at people who were smoking cigarettes in the 1950s, just no filters all the time. You can smoke inside, you can smoke wherever you want, smoke in the house, smoke in the airplane, no regulations, right? And I think that 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 reckoning on a regulatory level is definitely overdue. And, you know, hey, 10, 20 years from now, hopefully, hopefully we'll find some regulations that make sense. So let's end like on a note of hope, if we can, if, if such a thing is possible, because I know podcasts like this can be a little doom and gloom. We've talked about how tech has both, you know, help broaden access to therapy and also put people uh, in, in the, on the couch across from you in, in a lot of ways. And I'm curious if you were to wave a, a magic wand and talk about the therapy environment five years, 10 years from now, if we do things right, what could that look like? And what would the benefits be? You know, I think most of this is going to happen outside of the therapy room. And what I mean by that is we're going to be more proactive in raising kids who are, you know, healthy. There's going to be, and I think you're starting to see, you know, glimmers of that and school counselors, the school counselors been of the, the 90s and thousands, which I'm sure you're aware of very much function as, you know, people who would help you get to college and help with applications and very little on the actual, you know, spiritually adopting kids at the school. And that's not the case anymore. I think you're, you're starting to see a lot, and I don't have the numbers, but it'd be interesting to look at them. I think A, there's more school counselors in our schools. And then B, I think the, the function of their job is starting to change to actually be more, you know, emotionally supportive and educative of kids and really, you know, teaching them, you know, emotional regulation, emotional awareness, those really fundamental skills that a lot of my clients who are in their 30s and 40s are now just learning when they should have been learning them when they're seven. And if they had learned them when they're seven, that would have saved a lot. And I think the addendum to that is that the broadened access to therapy combined with the desire of parents to raise healthy children and a reduced stigma around mental health provides opportunities to broaden that access, not just to the 30 and 40 year olds who you work with, but to, to smaller people as well. And so I can imagine a world five years from now, 10 years from now, where basic mental health curriculum and skills are able to infiltrate in younger and younger ages. And 
and perhaps even non-clinicians will be equipped with the skills to help raise the next generation of kids in a more mentally healthy way. I love that. I love that. Some para, you know, almost how we have physician assistants having some kind of therapist assistants that are, because therapy, and this is the last, maybe, hey, here's another change. I'll give you a two for one, Ben, two for one. Oh, uh, two for one in this session? Oh, I'm so grateful. <laughs> even when we're even when we're at time. So what I'll end on is, unfortunately, we haven't figured out a supply issue. Path ourselves, and then the U.S. as a whole is undersupplied with therapists. And one of the main reasons behind that is it is such a long process to become a therapist. It it takes, you know, from start to finish, probably, you know, quickest path becoming, you know, from, from day one where you're starting to open up the books to you are a licensed therapist who doesn't need supervision. Four to five years is the shortest path. And for most people, it takes longer. So it is a very long journey to get there. And, you know, compare that with airline pilot who you can fast track that in nine months and they're flying, you know, a hundred people on a commercial flight, life or death. So my hope is here is that, you know, one day the accreditations institutions will, you know, figure out quicker ways to get people who are interested in practicing therapy to actually practicing therapy. And I think that will help a lot with the access problem. That's an interesting note to, to end on. Get on at LinkedIn Learning. I want to be able to go to go click on my, my therapy course. Well, well, Ben, thank you so much for, for making the time. And this was an, a fascinating conversation. And hopefully we'll have you back on and have some more down the road. But I appreciate it, man. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Ben. 